you didn't have a home? What if you was you, less a home? In essence, you were homeless. You, less a home, homeless. Would it make you any less of a human being? Would it make you less of someone created in the image of God? Would it make you less eligible to experience the salvation that's offered by Jesus? Right. The answer is no, right? No to all those things. So really, on the most important things, a person less a home is no different than a person plus a home. Read an article this last week, the January 5th issue of the New York Times Magazine. Intriguing article, okay? It's about this physician, a 70-something-year-old physician, um, offering hope and medical care to people who are a, uh, a person less a home. It started, it's in Boston, right? And you got to understand, this guy was a, uh, a Harvard, Harvard trained MD, had been accepted to Sloan Kettering, their uh, uh, oncology uh, residency. He takes a one-year diversion, supposedly one-year diversion. Starts by washing feet. I kid you not. His name is Jim O'Connell and the Rough Sleepers, right? So he's introduced to nurse Barbara McInnes, okay, who's a lay Franciscan, and shows him the technique, okay? Harvard trained, accepted to a prestigious oncology fellowship. It was simple enough. You filled a plastic tub halfway up with Benadine. Benadine? Is that the right? Am I saying that right? B-A-T-I-D-I-N-E? Okay. And then you put the patient's feet in it. And in keeping with an old rule, you address the patient by his surname. So, Mr. Jones. Early on, Jim O'Connell felt frustrated in the clinic, kneeling in front of patients, beginning to form silent diagnosis, but not being allowed to act. Apparently, by washing someone's feet, you can tell a lot about the person. He had this one client, okay? The feet were so huge, so swollen, that Jim O'Connell had to prepare a separate tub for each. The man didn't speak to him for weeks. Finally, one evening, O'Connell knelt on the floor filling the tubs. He heard the old man say, hey, I thought you were supposed to be a doctor. He looked down at McConnell, smile on his face, amusement in his eyes. O'Connell said, yeah, yeah, I am indeed a doctor. <laughs> then he says, please excuse my French or Anglo-Saxon. So what the hell are you doing soaking feet? <laughs> Isn't that great? O'Connell glanced around, sees the other nurses around him, knows that his credibility is at stake, and he says, you know what? I just do what the nurses tell me to do. The old fellow nodded, smart man, that's what I do. Washing feet. Caring for people who are persons less a home. What are the things that you like in your home? Heat, a bed, sheets, food, stove. What do you like in your home? Attached garage, heated attached garage, a nice couch, a nice TV, a sauna. <laughs> yes, please. What are the things that you like in your home? Something for your house. What about something for his house? Four ideas, four things to think about. Four verses, well, actually closer to eight, but who's counting? We'll just let the text stand on its own. The first one's on page 616. 
Isaiah 56, 7, and it's important because when we get to point number two, which should actually be Matthew 21, not 22, that's my heir, no one else's, mea culpa, the reference is to Psalm 56, 7, verse 7, these I will bring to my holy mountain, God is talking through the voice of Isaiah the pen of Isaiah, rather. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. These I will bring. It's intriguing. The first six verses list off these groups of people that in the ancient Near Eastern world, in the house of Israel, you would have thought are ineligible to participate in the kingdom of God, in the things of God. They list off foreigners. They list off eunuchs. They list off individuals who don't have sons and daughters. Foreigners, right? These... God says, I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. It's God speaking. It's a composition, a lot of different people. It's identity, it's posture, it's description, it's location. It's, I think, as we bring 56-7 into our world today, where we are right now. And not just in this physical place, but where we can be at any time. Question number one, thought number one for point number one, if you want to write it down, what can I do to make my house, my home, a place of prayer? The next text, flipping forward, Matthew 21, 22, 8, 26. It starts off with Jesus cleansing the temple, and he references the Psalm 56, 7 reference. It is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Where did that come from? Psalm 56, 7. We just learned that. But you make it a den of robbers. Okay, and he's talking to the religious elite of the day and how they've allowed the temple to become a place that is unrecognizable from a house of prayer. In the same chapter, Matthew addresses this idea of prayer with Jesus' words. Check these out. 21, 22. And whatever you ask in prayer you will receive if you have faith. That's a pretty big phrase. One might even argue it is the most extraordinary of statements that one could possibly make. And Jesus makes it. We look at the words and wonder, whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. We might even look for the exotic or the unusual. We wonder, could it be true? My team is down by 100 points, 30 seconds left. I'm going to pray in faith. That's what we do, right? without really bothering, I think, at times to unlock the power of prayer in our lives. Because what Jesus says is extraordinary. Being in this posture, with this identity, asking in prayer, asking in faith. Second point, second question, second thought. What can I do, what can we do to explore the outrageous power of prayer? 
Flipping forward, page 909, Acts chapter 1, verse 14. In the wake of Jesus' departure, he was betrayed, crucified, died, experienced the resurrection, and now has ascended to heaven. But, truth be told, there's a little uncertainty in what's going to happen next. A ragtag group of followers are gathering together, wondering what the next step is. They've been promised something extraordinary called the Holy Spirit, but it hasn't happened yet. And into that, this verse appears, verse 14. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. All these are referencing the disciples praying together, in the wake of Jesus' departure, gathering together, devotion, prayer. It's not just the inner circle. It's not just the boys' club. We see in the verse the level nature of prayer, that, that all can come, all can come together. It's a heart set on this thing, on prayer, on seeking. Third question for a third point, a third idea. What does my heart look like when it is devoted to prayer? Finally today, James 5, 13, page 10, 13. Is any among you suffering? Yes, let him pray. Is any among you cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. It's four verses that describe a dependence, an inherent dependence that I cannot do this thing called life on my own. That irrespective of the circumstances that I am experiencing or irrespective of the circumstances that you are experiencing, whether it be heavy or whether it be joyful, whether it be full of health or sickness, you need me to pray for you and I need you to pray for me. I mean, you could almost turn to the person next to you, whether or not you know them or not, and say, I need you to pray for me, and you need me to pray for you. Will you pray for me? A fourth question for a fourth point. But perhaps more important, too strong. certainly integral to the idea of praying for one another, is that we need to be righteous for each other. 
And then we need to pray for each other. Here's where the challenge lie. Here is where the stakes are highest. Caution. Being righteous is not being perfect. Being righteous is handling rightly any situation that comes up, even when we screw up and sin. This last week, an old enemy visited me. I've talked about it frequently up here, how I was taught or how I learned, depending upon your perspective, to be angry and to get angry, to get irrationally angry. And I have to tell you, it's probably been a couple of years since this cat came around my house. But he was there Friday night. I'd like to say, in my anger, I did not sin. But I'd only like to say that, because I can't. Because I did. And even though this is an old enemy of mine, I was the one who did the damage. Being righteous is not being perfect. Being righteous is handling rightly any situation that comes up, even when we screw up. And the best thing that I could do on Friday night is get the train back on the track and start acting rightly, which was confessing the wrong, asking forgiveness when the time was right. We need each other in this house of prayer. We need people acting rightly. No one is excluded from this. If we are not acting rightly, we need to start acting rightly. The stakes are way too high. We need people praying for each other. We need to come with our ragged stories and experiences. We need to go from being a people who are a person less a home, who have discovered a house of prayer, wherever we might find ourselves. And so it's how we want to start this new year together. We want to pray for each other in this house of prayer. Whatever our needs are in this room today, whether they are suffering 
or whether they are sickness or whether they are confession of sin or perhaps praise. We want to pray with you and for you today. Mechanically, this is how it will work. We'll invite you to walk up this aisle. And this aisle. And then we'll use the outside aisles and the center aisles to travel back to our seats. This will avoid any head-on collisions, concussion protocols, and all of those sorts of things. For some of you, you'll remember from previous years that we did communion on our prayer Sunday. And we did when this service coincided with the first Sunday of January. But given the ground that we covered last week, spending the morning focused on the communion table, this Sunday we will spend the morning focused on prayer. I invite you to take the bold step of walking forward. This card, you should have been given one on your way in. One per family. If you want an extra one, we'll get extra ones to you. There's some in the front row. Or if you make eye contact with one of our ushers, they will put one in your hand. Fill this card out. Your name, your family's names, your friends' names, anyone you'd like us to pray for. And then there will be six couples up front, three on each side. Give the card to one of the six couples, and we will pray for you. We will celebrate you if today is a good with you, if today is a good day. We will pray for you if you are suffering or sick. And if you want to confess sin, we will pronounce the words of Jesus that you are forgiven. Once you've completed, go back to your seat and join in singing with Lee and Holly and Tanya and the band. I'm going to invite our prayer teams to come forward and get into place. And we're going to start to pray.